When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast in partnership with the Grierson Trust. This is a brand new podcast that asks nonfiction filmmakers about the documentaries that have had a lasting impact on their lives and careers. I'm your host, June Jennings. I'm a writer and journalist based in New York and currently serve as the Engagement and Partnerships Manager for Field of Vision, an award-winning filmmaker-driven documentary unit. Every week, I'll ask a new filmmaker or filmmaking team about three documentaries connected by a single theme, that have made a meaningful impression on their work and life. This week, we have not one, but two esteemed guests, Nicole Noonan and Jim Lebrecht, the filmmakers behind the incredibly powerful Netflix documentary, Crip Camp. The documentary was executive produced by Michelle and Barack Obama and is nominated for Best Single International Documentary at this year's Grierson Awards. If you're wondering how all that works in relationship to their documentary picks, Nicole and Jim have selected and we'll be talking about three between them. Nicole Noonan is an Emmy Award-winning documentary producer and director, as well as a four-time Sundance Film Festival alum. Nicole co-directed The Revolutionary Optimists, which won the Sundance Hilton Sustainability Award. She also co-directed and co-produced the acclaimed documentary The Rape of Europa, about the Nazis' war on European culture, for which she was nominated for a WGA Award and shortlisted for an Academy Award. Jim Lebrecht has over 40 years of experience as a film and theater sound designer and mixer, and is an author, disability rights activist, and filmmaker. Jim started his career in the theater, working as the resident sound designer at the Berkeley Repertory Theater for 10 years. In 1996, Jim founded the audio post-production house Berkeley Sound Artists and quickly found a home in the documentary and independent film community. Jim and BSA's credits include Minding the Gap, Unrest, The Force, The Island President, The Waiting Room, and Audrey and Daisy. Jim's work as an activist began in high school and continues to this day. He is currently a board member at the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, which works for the rights of the disabled through education, legislation, and litigation. Together, Nicole and Jim wrote, produced, and directed Crip Camp, a story about the freewheeling and ramshackle Camp Jeanette, where teenagers with disabilities can enjoy summertime sports, smoking, and makeout sessions. The campers would go on to ignite a landmark movement to secure life-changing accessibility for millions. You can currently watch Crip Camp on Netflix, and I highly recommend that you do. This episode was recorded on Election Day in the U.S., and I'm incredibly grateful to Nicole and Jim for taking the time to speak with me. It was such an insightful and galvanizing conversation, and a much-needed look at the social movements that have created meaningful change throughout history. So let's go to that interview. Hello, Nicole and Jim, and welcome to the Doc Exchange. It's really great to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thank you. 
First of all, congratulations on both your Grierson and Critics' Choice Award nominations. That's super exciting for the film. Thank you. We're really excited. The film has had had such an amazing trajectory and has touched so many people. So the recognition just feels super exciting for this particular moment. So before we get into your film picks for today, I just want to get a sense of how you both found and began working in the documentary field. Jim, I know you have a background in sound design, but was filmmaking something you both actively pursued? You know, how did you arrive at this point in your careers? Well, I, I mean, I, you alluded to the fact that I've been a sound mixer for years, and I've been really working in film for about 30 years, but in documentary specifically, really started embracing and working within this incredible community in the Bay Area about 25 years ago. So being a sound mixer and sound designer and running my company, I mean, I know I've worked on, you know, hundreds of documentaries and in the last maybe five to 10 years, I really started looking at documentary films and really so much appreciating their power to mm-hmm. really be an effective force for change. And at the same time, my desire to really advocate for people with disabilities, which has been part of my life for a very long time, but it kind of got kickstarted. And I wasn't really seeing, I saw films, I worked on films around disability but never really saw or felt like there was one that really kind of nailed it that really was from the inside. And I felt it was really important. I really wanted to make that happen. And how about you, Nicole? How did you begin your work in documentary film? Now, kind of looking back, I think I was originally inspired to feel like storytelling and especially kind of telling really important stories out of history that could impact the way we see the world now really sort of became A focus for me because I grew up on Bainbridge Island, which is a little island near Seattle. And that island had a very strong and really amazing Japanese-American community. And during World War II, they were the first Japanese-American community to be forcibly relocated because of racism during the war. So here it is, the 1980s, when I'm growing up there. And the community just had this incredibly strong passion around telling that story so people would never forget, to the extent that they wrote their own curriculum and got it in the public schools. The parents would gather us, like their kids' friends, for slumber parties and and play documentaries, actually, and try to educate us. And just there was this real focus on storytelling for change. And I think that I never really shook that. And then I was actually later on in high school part of a documentary that was about like a peer counseling program. And we went on a retreat and it was this very profound kind of life-changing experience for me, not unlike what you see happening for Jim and campers and Camp Jeanette and Crip Camp. And this crew was with us the whole time. And then I went and saw them edit and I went to the final screening and then I saw it on PBS. And I kind of went through that whole journey of seeing how a story came together and Then it was years later that I kind of focused around documentary, but those were the foundational things that made me start to fall in love with storytelling as a practice and documentary as an art form. So speaking of stories for change, how did you two come together to work on Crip Camp? So as Jim said, he has been this legendary sound mixer and sound designer for a long time in the Bay Area. And when I was kind of finishing my first independent feature length documentary, which was called Sentenced Home, and it it followed some... Cambodian-American men from Seattle who had suddenly become eligible to be deported back to Cambodia after 9-11. And my co-director, David Gravius, and I were looking for a sound design company to work with. And Jim had just sort of set up shop in the Fantasy Building in Berkeley and was recommended to us. And we loved Jim. We had an amazing creative connection with him. And then I worked with Jim on two other features. And over the course of time, I really started to get impressed by 
the extent to which Jim was becoming a really powerful advocacy voice around better representation for people with disabilities in the media, but also like more inclusion for filmmakers with disabilities in our own world. And he started kind of pitching me ideas. And one day we went out to lunch and he said, you know, what I've really always wanted to see, honestly, is a film about my summer camp. And I was super intrigued. And the concept was maybe I would fall in love with the idea and want to make a film about it, which I did. But I think what I really thought was exciting was the idea of collaborating with Jim and having the film told from the inside out, from Jim's perspective as a person with a lived experience of disability. So I said, you know, do you think we could co-direct this together? And he said yes, and we were off and running. Amazing. I didn't anticipate her asking me that. And it was uh, one of those moments where you kind of go, oh, my God, what a wonderful thing. Yes. Yes, please. Thank you. Kind of getting into the films that we're going to talk about today, all of your selections revolve around the idea of telling one's own story, activism, protest, social change. I'm wondering if you approach making Crip Camp with the intention to raise awareness around issues of disability and the history of this particular movement, or did that come about in a more organic way while making the film? Well, I think that our really our initial goal was to tell a story around disability that was unlike any other. One of our main goals was to change how people with disabilities and without disabilities felt about disability, you know, about themselves and to open up conversations. So certainly the intention was to really kind of look at this camp and these people and how that experience at that camp motivated so many people, not just even the campers, but the counselors and the staff members too to what they wound up doing in their lives. I mean, we center on the political movement, but it was just kind of, you know, just knowing that it was a story in which people would see folks with disabilities in a way that we we hoped that they had never experienced it before and to shatter some really, really bad stereotypes. You know, for me as a filmmaker who's done a number of films that are about history, I really was one of the things that was most exciting to me was the way Jim talked about the connection between this really profound experience of liberation that the Janetians experienced at the camp across that summer and the movement that came later. And the more I started researching that and both Jim and I kind of like calling up campers and trying to figure out, did they agree with that theory, (laughs) you know, that Jim had? And was there really something to it, which of course we discovered there was, but also just, you know, me uncovering my own ignorance about the profound contribution that the disability civil rights movement had and what it was and how it came about and how so many things that I think Americans look at as sort of almost like charity that we at some point kind of deigned to give people with disabilities in terms of accessibility regulations and things like that, that actually those were hard fought battles and that that movement is one of the great civil rights stories of our time. And so it was super exciting to both of us, I think, to think that maybe we could make a film that could be one of these seminal historical documentaries that kind of lifts up a story out of history and makes it a part of the canon so that, you know, maybe someday we would find the 504 sit-in in in high school textbooks. But at the same time, you know, would feel like a... um, like a summer camp film and would be character driven. And our hope was that we could kind of seduce viewers through the universality of the summer camp story and how completely immersive and magical that footage was, like give them a new lens through that footage through which to look at the history. So the history didn't feel othered when you were learning it, but it felt like a part of something that you had already come to feel you were 
strongly connected to. Like these were your friends that you loved, that you met at summer camp who were fighting this fight. I think some of that immediacy are very much embodied in this joyous, rebellious spirit that's throughout the film. A moment that particularly stuck with me was when Denise, who lives with cerebral palsy and who's gone on to become an author and was also an academic, and she seemed sort of pleased that she's contracted an STI because it proved in a way that she was sexually active. I wonder if you can talk about how exploring serious topics and injustices, but also balancing that rebellious spirit and sense of humor, like how did you find the balance to have both the historical and the more in-depth sort of look at the movement with this summer camp rollicking film as well. I mean, I think that it was important to us to find that right balance that you're talking about. It's not like the joy was like manufactured. It was there that we had at our fingertips, many stories of real harmful exclusion of joy of everything else that makes up the human experience. So like Mm -hmm. with any other film, we had to craft that balance. But I think that the tropes or what most people see around disability tends to be very tragic stories. And really equating people with disabilities with joy or art or culture or sex or eroticism, you just don't see them there. I mean, I think that this was on our mind as we were striking that balance. Yeah, it was really critical. We discovered as we were making the film, actually, it wasn't until we got into cutting scenes and showing them to people that I realized how perilous trying to make a film about disability is when the representations of it have been so almost universally bad for so long. So you show somebody something that to you seems multifaceted and multidimensional and all of that. And if you make the music a little bit too maudlin or something, people are like, oh, that's tragic. Or you get this, oh, you know. And so we we did a lot of screenings, both for disabled audiences and non-disabled audiences and mixed audiences. And really, like, we're constantly tuning and refining and trying to figure out, like, what could we do that would keep people's brains from going into those pre-programmed channels? And one of the things that we discovered was, like, a secret sauce was complexity of emotion, like emotional range. So laughing through your tears, you know, those kinds of feelings just kept people on their heels a little bit so that they would be kind of emotionally open and accept things and feel them before they, you know, thought of going down a track that they'd been down before in regards to disability, if that makes sense. That does make sense. I think that there is a way that, like you're saying, people are pre-programmed to respond to folks that are not like them or have a different experience, especially when it comes to things around disability. I find that in my life, that is the place where there is so much more to know, learn, understand, and kind of want to pivot a bit to the first pick. We're going to talk about the first one that you selected, Nicole, which is called The Times of Harvey Milk. I just want to get a sense of why you chose that film and why it resonates with you. Well, I chose the film because it was really in my heart when we decided to make Crip Camp. Also, like a very fundamental film for me as a filmmaker. I saw it in college. I actually remember like the the fall evening when I went to the auditorium in Ohio and went to see this film and basically walked in very um, homophobic, I would say. Like I didn't think that I was, but I came out realizing so many of the biases that I held. And I also came out feeling like I met and fell in love with a community that I didn't really understand as a community at that time, you know, or hadn't known as a community. I mean, this is 1987, you know, so things have changed a lot since then. 
I really changed from watching the film. And I remember walking back to my dorm after that screening and thinking, how could that happen? Like, how could a film actually change me? And I think I mm-hmm. saw the potential for this film, Crip Camp, to do something similar. You know, I also really am deeply in love with the Bay Area. Jim and I have that in common. (laughs) We're both really part of this community. And we both came out here for our own reasons to find freedom and explore things and be creative and be political. And that film actually is one of the main reasons why I moved out to San Francisco as soon as I could after college. And I knew about the the filmmakers, Rob and Jeffrey being out here, and I admired them. And I knew that it was kind of a hub for filmmakers like that who cared about social justice issues. And so for all of those reasons, it's just like a very, and many others in terms of how it was creatively put together, it's a really important film for me. And so with that in mind, what do you think this film does so successfully that you wanted to maybe emulate or sort of carry on the legacy of storytelling that was in that film with Crip Camp? Well, one thing is that, you know, to me, it feels like a community told story. There are the times of Harvey Milk, you know, there are people who present at the beginning of the documentary, maybe as outsiders, but by the end of the film, you find out that even the people who seem like they're a little on the edge of even understanding kind of what Harvey or the gay community was about. By the end of the film, you understand that they have kind of come into that community and they consider themselves a part of it. And because the filmmakers are part of that community, it has this real intimacy in terms of the way the interviews are conducted and the way people are talking to each other. And you have this feeling that there's this sort of catharsis happening because a community is telling one of its seminal movement stories to itself. And so I think that that was something that Jim and I both felt really strongly was something special that we could try to do, kind of carry on in that tradition with Crip Camp. And so because Jim was the person that people were talking to when we conducted interviews and the way that people are talking to Jim and the intimacy and warmth and insider humor and all of that that is kind of conjured up by that was something that I really loved about Harvey Milk. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
And I would say the other thing is actually the sort of humor tears balance, you know, and that Mm -hmm. feeling that you are really coming to intimately know people as you're learning this story. So you kind of feel like you're going on a journey with them and it doesn't feel like it's something that's being presented to you. Thinking about the power that's so innate in that film that captures the charisma of Harvey Milk and the energy of the local politics that he was involved in. Is that idea of capturing charisma and energy also something that you're thinking about in the edit for Crip Camp? Because the characters are, are just so alive and there's so much personality and it very much feels like a film, as Nicole was saying, like a film that's community told. So I just want to get a sense of like, did you think about building character in that way? For Crip Camp. I think we did. And that was a joyful and fairly easy part of the process because the characters were so great. <laughs> you know, they were so great. And I think that I do remember this conversation that you and I had really early on, Jim, where you were telling me a lot of the things that, you know, some of the issues that you were hoping would surface through the interviews and the storytelling around sexuality and things like that. And I said, do you think people would be willing to talk about that? And you were like, Oh yeah, they would. You know, they would be. So it's like that feeling of release. I think of like, yes, you know, I want to tell this story, and to have the opportunity to tell it to you, Jim, now was just so emotionally powerful that I felt like it, it made the interviews kind of jump off the screen. But also, we definitely were really determined to try to find footage and photographs that could pair with that kind of energy of the way the interviews were shot and told. And we were so lucky to find things that actually were like these key character moments. I would say one incredible thing in my mind is that Judy Human tells a story about being a young girl who's trying to fight back tears when she's, you know, enraged at an injustice that she's experienced. And then we see her do that later on. Not only do Mm -hmm. we see her actually like fight back tears as she's speaking truth to power in this hearing to this nodding bureaucrat, but we also then hear her in an interview talk about this very moment when this little boy, when she was seven or eight years old, said, are you sick? That she was kind of the first time she noticed that she had that emotional response. And so there were ways in which we tried to really make sure that we were telling the story through those sort of moments of character development and moments of emotional connection and really trying to stay away from presenting a scene. And then this happened, you know. That makes a lot of sense. So it's time to go to film number two. Jim, the film is The Devil and Daniel Johnston, which is actually a documentary you worked on. So can you tell us why it holds such a special place in your heart? Well, I hope this doesn't sound terribly self-serving, but I was the sound designer and mixer on that film. And so I was intimately involved with the making of the film. And the reason I wanted to talk about it a little bit was that Daniel basically was documenting his life. And you see over the course of time, a little bit better technology that he was using, but was videotaping himself all the time. And he really hands off to Jeff in regards to how incredible that film turned out. But for me, I think what I'm trying to say is as I've been a sound mixer, I've been taking notes. I've been like in graduate school for 25 years learning from some of the most wonderful people or new filmmakers, but always seeing things that to me inform me how we can do this. And I don't think we talk about sound very often when, how did you make your film and how was sound important? Usually it's the verite style or different things like that. And so I wanted to bring this up because I just remember, you know, one of the things that we did with the film was that, you know, Daniel would sometimes shoot into a mirror so you could actually see him holding the camera. 
Okay, well, what room is he in? Well, he's in an empty bedroom that's all wood floors and stuff. And so what we would do is we would physically place our audience in that space by using a really kind of specific type of very accurate reverberation that we would add to the room. And it's an impulse response reverb is what it's called, in which you can actually kind of like set off a pop in a room, record it, and using that as a guide to the software, how to recreate what the room sounds like. And so we did that for so many of the different locations. And it wasn't like, wow, here I am, I'm inside a huge church and I can hear things being bouncing around me. But there was a subtle sense of being in a place that to me, I felt really successfully brought you even closer. The other aspect about that film for me that was terribly important is I felt like often sound people will really look visually what's in front of you. And, you know, how you're going to approach your audio or your sound design is often, you know, a response to what's already been dictated. And the same thing with The Devil of Daniel Johnston. It gave, there was a certain amount of latitude to try ideas or just to be unrealistic but never losing the realism of the piece. There's a moment where one of the editors of the paper in Austin is talking about Daniel kind of having an episode. He, he really dealt with a lot of mental health issues. And he's in the middle of the river. And I added in the sound of the water in his hands. Now, in a very, very straight documentary, that would feel like incredibly like artifice. But when you have such a cohesive presentation visually in the story and with sound and manipulating sound, not distractingly, but supportive like that, you can take those leaps. I'm now wondering, did working on this film influence or change how you worked in sound afterwards, either in terms of what you're putting on screen or perhaps how you perceive your own creativity or artistry after that? It made me trust myself more. I mean, to me, I think we all have touchstones in our career about things we've done and what we've learned. And it really stretched me as a mixer and a creative person so that it gave me a certain amount of confidence that I think I simply didn't have before. And so in talking about myself as a filmmaker now, not just as a sound person, I think that I've really drawn upon trusting that even if I haven't made 14 different films in the past, that my gut instincts about what I've observed in my life and what I've taken note of, and also how I work so hard to collaborate and that really informs me as a filmmaker. And that's the key, the, the big key to, I think, what made our film as successful as people are saying it is, is our collaboration. And so can you talk a little bit more about how you use sound to feed into the ambitions or storytelling in Crip Camp, thinking about how music, how sound really feed into the feel of the film and like what an audience is supposed to experience at any given point? Well, I mean, one obvious thing is the music. I am such a huge music junkie. I mean, I wanted to become a sound person so I could do sound for the Grateful Dead, okay? So that didn't quite happen. But I think that for us, the music was a, an important collaboration that we would bring in things to the editing room, our editors and stuff. And then the other aspect really is in the sound design and the mix and such. And again, our collaboration, I mixed the film. I, I worked with Berkeley Sound Artists, and we worked with Berkeley Sound Artists. And... It was just a true back and forth and collaboration. It was great. But one thing that I was thinking about when you were describing kind of how you created a space through sound in Daniel Johnston, one thing that Jim kind of was working on on his own, really, because I wouldn't have been able to even come to the table with this knowledge, 
is we would be cutting a scene and Jim would be like, okay, well, I've got this like used wheelchair that just came in and the guys and I are going to do some recording of the sounds of this vintage hand pushed chair and I'll, I'll be right back. And I was sort of like, okay, you know, like, so he was pretty much for years collecting sound effects to create a soundscape of chairs in different environments that match Jim's memory of the way they sounded at the time. And I thought that was neat, but I was very floored by the difference it made in the film. In fact, at one point, it kind of almost brought me close to tears when we were in the mixing theater. And this moment happens where the Center for Independent Living in Berkeley has been created. And through all of the painstaking work that Jim and his team did, we've actually heard the manual chairs going up the ramps and on the sidewalks and getting loaded out of cars and all of those different sounds. But all of a sudden we're in Berkeley, you know, six years later and the Center for Independent Living had its own wheelchair repair shop and they helped people get power chairs. And so when, you know, footage goes into the Center for Independent Living, it's like this whole world of people in power chairs and they're like zooming around and Jim created that. You feel this intimacy of being in a world that's full of manual chairs. And then you feel the shift in kind of history and time when everybody's zooming around and you're finding out that your character, you know, that you love Denise gets a power chair and gets this independence. So that was just like really kind of magical and almost kind of felt like this meant to be kind of thing that could only have happened in, in this film with this, filmmaker with these memories and this devotion to sound. <laughs> it's not like there was this really sophisticated library of wheelchair sound effects for you to choose from. Like you were putting sounds in film that we've never really heard in film before because there's not very many films like this that are about like a whole community of wheelchair users all gathering together and like taking over streets in Manhattan. And so I really loved that like attention to detail is kind of like creating a world that most of us who haven't gone to Camp Jeanette or hadn't been a part of that history or that community, we didn't have a template for even knowing what that might sound like. The sound of the film is incredible. And I'm so grateful to be able to get a better sense of like the work that went into creating that authentic and sort of very immersive experience of the film. So let's go to your final pick, which is a more recent documentary titled, I Am Not Your Negro. Nicole, starting with you, why is this film so important to you? Why does it resonate? You know, I mean, I almost kind of think of like Harvey Milk as like the first kind of seminal documentary that made an impact on me. And I'm Not Your Negro is kind of the next most important, even though it only came out a few years ago. And while Jim and I were thinking about Crip Camp and putting it together, it had that impact on me of stretching the way I think and see things and changing them irrevocably, I think. It also did something that I found maybe Harvey Milk also did but that I know we tried to carry forward a little bit with Crip Camp, which was this incredible way that kind of the past seemed like the present. And it seemed so contemporary. It felt like somehow the filmmaker had taken this archival footage out of the past and then brought it into the filmmaker's interpretation of that and kind of what the filmmaker experienced when watching that and thinking about it now. And somehow there was sort of collision that was really powerful so that you could never feel like you were watching something that wasn't completely pertinent to the moment that we're living in right now. And I also felt about that film that it did an incredible job of challenging the viewer really intensely 
both because James Baldwin did that a lot when he was speaking and kind of in the way he thought and the way he wrote. It's all about really challenging you to look at yourself and your own bias and your own misperceptions in a way that it feels very intimate and approachable and you feel like you're somehow carried along by it, but you're really challenged. And that to have a film full of that and to have me feel so connected, I remember reading in the New York Times review that you feel by the end of the film like you know him and he knows you. And I think it was that he knows you part that we thought about a lot in Crip Camp because we needed the viewer to be able to understand and come to terms with some of the aspects of the ableism that is within them and to see things from the point of view of people with disabilities and to see disability as a social justice and civil rights issue. But we also needed them to feel like they could come in and kind of feel connected to this community. And anyway, I honestly think I'm Not Your Negro is like the most powerful film documentary I've ever seen. And I think the way it's an essay and it's so intimate in terms of the point of view and perspective of the filmmaker, but somehow the filmmaker's perspective and the kind of like just raw power of the footage and of James Baldwin himself, they never conflict. They somehow just feel kind of fused together in this really perfect, beautiful way. I still don't quite know how he did it. And then I'm just going to say one more thing, which I also love about about that film, which is that the use of the archival is so incredible in that it has this like really smart way of being both an illustration of what Baldwin's talking about or trying to get across, but also it's like the fragments of the archival themselves are cultural indictments kind of. And we're, we're really aware of like what that piece of archival footage or this TV show or that movie or these still pictures actually are. And that was also something that we had this incredible editor working on Crip Camp named Eileen Meyer. And I think she has a similar ability to kind of do that so that a lot of the footage, when we start seeing our camp people in news footage or the film that was made to promote employment of people with disabilities that Jim was featured in that starts the film out, you're hearing people talk about disability using words that now make you uncomfortable, you're kind of thinking like, God, that's the way people used to frame these things back then. But you're also kind of following this immersive narrative thread. And that's another way in which that film is a huge inspiration to me. I'm actually kind of gutted at the moment because it's such a powerful film. And this moment in which we're making this recording is election day here in the United States. And we're facing an uncertain future about how that's all going to play out. And as I was watching the film again today, I was going, I wish everybody in our country had seen this film last night, had seen it a week ago, because like our film really speaks in kind of a unique way, the, the real intimate experience, the way Baldwin talks about it, especially in these interviews in the Dick Cavett shows was, you know, amazing. And the fact of the matter is, that was taped, what, in 1968? So hardly anybody's ever seen that footage. Yeah, uh, Certainly, you know, many people weren't alive when it was first made. And it was just just gut-wrenching to me. That's all. I just, a really important film to to really just kind of tout and say that it echoes, I think, for us, what we hope for our film, which is to really grab your attention and really make you think and, and don't look away. 
Well, I think this is a great place to end the conversation. Really appreciate this opportunity to talk and we get asked a lot of questions, but these are really wonderful to really have this kind of conversation. So, Well, so glad that we could talk today and share this space to talk about films that you both love and a film that we all love, which is Crip Camp. Nicole, Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the Doc Exchange. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you today. That's all for this week's show. The Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production in partnership with the Grierson Trust. I'm your host, June Jennings. The Doc Exchange is produced by Nicole Davis and Annie Hughes. Our executive producer is Paul Wolf. Our music is by Dusty Dex and sourced through Epidemic Sound. We're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Nash Kasich. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want to watch even more great documentaries, join us at Real Stories on YouTube, Amazon, Facebook, and other platforms. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.